Welcome to episode 20 of the Legends Podcast. I am one half of the Legend. Fuck. All right, start over. Welcome to episode 20 of the Legends Podcast. I am one half of the Legends Podcast here with my co-host, Sam Manheimer. And to all the legends out listening out there, we have a great episode for you today. We have a very special guest, a good friend of mine. I've known her since childhood, Kai Robbins. Kai's a very interesting girl. She lived in Hawaii for a bit. She currently works for a marketing company, and she's a one of the biggest foodies and best cooks I know. Yeah, and we had a great conversation about ways to prepare food, cool ingredients to include, how to create a food Instagram, or I guess how, how she's created her food Instagram account and, and what her plans are going forward, trying to continue to pursue her passion for cooking and monetizing and kind of growing her brand as a chef. Yeah, real great conversation. She drops a lot of really good, authentic, like fish markets and like different Asian grocery stores that you could find throughout Chicago that I wrote down and saved in my Google Maps. Definitely going to check some of those out. Um, Sam, what did you do last night? So Ari and I had two nights. It was a kind of a crossroads for the two of us. Um, we were faced with the choice of either going out or hanging out with friends and watching the UFC fight. I went with the latter. Ari went with the former. I, I'm happy with my decision to stay in. The fights that I watched last night were incredible. For anyone who was a UFC fan, the card was just top to bottom, one of the better packages I think I've ever seen. Just incredible knockouts and wild finishes. And Ari went out on Well Street, which at this point in my 26-year-old life, I, I just physically am not able to go to. Yeah, the fights are great. Um, there was a little side action going on, too. Jake Paul and Daniel Cormier got into it, which is cool. Daniel Cormier would murder him. Tom Brady was ringside. 15K people there. No masks required. Things are coming back to normal. Uh, the Usman knockout was fantastic. That was exactly what I wanted to happen. I love Kamaru Usman. You get well soon, Chris Weidman. For those that saw a really nasty leg break, if, if you're if you get a little queasy, I wouldn't watch it. But I yeah, I, I hope that I hope that man gets better soon. But I did go out on Well Street with a couple of friends. It was nice. I mean, we got pretty drunk, but also, you know, did I really miss going out that much? Not really. Do I miss getting together with friends? Yes. And I think this summer will be a lot of like people hosting stuff at their apartments because the bars are still like you have to sit you can only have a certain amount of people and you could you know have to sit six feet apart from the other table or whatever it is and like no one really wants to deal with that yeah 100 percent. and i take back what i was saying about going out on wall street i'm fine going there for like a brunch or a lunch or even a dinner because there are some good spots with food but it's more just the street itself at night that i'm not a huge fan of you also went out on Well Street last night because you went to our friend's place. <laughs> our friend's place was on Well Street. So yeah, I guess by virtue of the location, I physically went out on Well Street. But yeah, to your point, Ari, I, I think we're probably more likely to do a lot of house parties and whatnot. And we were talking yesterday about this too. I think the day drinking on a Saturday is much preferable to going out at night because you go out at night on a Saturday, your Sunday is kind of shot. You're going to wake up at 10, 11. You're going to feel bad. You're going to need to take care of yourself for a few hours to get your mind right. I woke up today. I did some work around the apartment. I changed the light switch. I cleaned out the sink, a little barkeeper's friend action, throw the powder on, scrape it out, 
spick and span. I feel amazing. So I don't, I don't regret the decision to not go out, but yeah, there's definitely a, a point that you reach as you get into your mid twenties where you just decide that you don't need to go out, but I'm looking forward to seeing people again in whatever capacity we wind up going down. Cause I mean, you can only stay in so much. Uh, you gotta, gotta rage with the fellows at some point or another. Yeah. And as we get older, the hangovers are getting worse and, and we've talked about this and like now like I have to go steam and sauna for like an hour to like feel normal again and and it's it's an effective tool but like it does take time and like I kind of like the day drinking on a Saturday is a definitely a better move to set you up for the week because then you stop drinking in the later afternoon early evening go to bed you know before midnight wake up the next day not feeling as terrible it's just a better, better for your Sunday. Hundred percent. So Well Street, were you the oldest person there at the age of twenty-six? Uh, no, because I saw Garrett Fisher out, and he's a year older than me. Oh, nice! Shout out Garrett <laughs> Fisher. Still getting yeah. after it. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny though. He said he ran into all like like all the guys two years younger. This like Gar, Teddy Shapiro, Shia Liba. So like you know, people are still out getting after it. I know they're two years younger than us, but. It is like, I guess I'm like on the older side of the people that are out there now. Whenever I go out on a place like Wall Street, or I guess when I used to go out on places like Wall Street, I feel like Gordy Howe lacing it up at the age of 55 or whatever, whenever he was playing in the NHL. I just feel like I'm a little out of my element. It's a younger man's yeah, game Yeah, but you're still, you're still dominant and a Hall of Famer. I just I don't know if I still got my fastball the same way I once did. You know, I used to be able to pound a couple vodka sodas. Nowadays, I feel like... I'm I'm sipping, you know. I'm I'm not I'm not throwing it back. I can still pound them. I just like feel way more terrible after than I did before. Like I remember, like freshman year of college, I had an 8 a.m. or a 9 a.m. on a Friday, which I don't know why, but like I that was before I knew that people didn't take classes on Friday. But I had a 9 a.m. and like I remember I like blacked out at a Thursday night party, like drank a ton, and like woke up the next morning, went to class, just like felt fine. That is a foreign concept to me at this point. I, yeah, I, no, those days are way beyond, way behind me. But I was just saying there was a time where I just felt like I was unaffected by alcohol. So I just kept drinking more. And then it eventually caught up with me. What blows me away thinking back on college while we're on this topic is that we would go out Thursday night, Friday afternoon, and then potentially again, like Saturday morning if there was a tailgate. So you're drinking heavily three times within like a under a 72 hour span. I yeah, would not. And then, if and and then when we got older, it was Tuesdays. Well, yeah. And then Tuesdays too. I mean, like, I'm just saying like that three day kind of back to back to back. You're on like a triple header at that point. Remember when we yeah. went back to school for um, homecoming, I think like two years ago, like I struggled and we were only there for, I think two days. It's just like, I, I don't have that in me anymore. I'm making business decisions out there when I'm getting offered drinks. You know, it's like, ah, like I, I, uh, I don't know. I don't even have an excuse. I need to come up with excuses to turn down drinks because, like, yeah. I'm going to need it eventually. Alcohol is slowly eroding at my soul. Wow. Are you, are you okay? No, I'm fine. I'll be all right. All right, just making sure. Um, so we've got the draft this week. I'm really excited for the Bears to draft someone way out of position. But Manny, what uh, what are your feeling on the what are your feelings on the draft coming up? I think it's going to be exciting to see who goes third because the Niners could go a couple different directions. They could take Beer Belly Mac Jones, a couple Deweys. Doesn't seem like a great athlete, but fits the system. Or they could go with potential generational talent, Justin Fields, who I think is probably 
the second best guy in the draft. We'll see what happens. I mean, these guys that get drafted in the first round at quarterback are always hit or miss. Like it's like, I think a 50% hit rate, give or take. So I, I think, I think fields and Lawrence are going to be good. I don't really care who goes third other than the fact that I did put a little bit of money on fields just because the odds were good. But yeah. I'm just excited to see the Niners fan base break down if they take Jones. Cause just 49ers Twitter does not want Mac Jones. If you're going to trade up to the third position in the draft to get a guy who and you probably could have gotten picks to get to the third. Yeah. Position. Yeah. I mean, you got to give up a lot of capital to move up that far. Why would you take somebody who's not the third best player in the draft? I don't see Jones, despite however well he may fit with the Niners as the third best player. So Skeptical about that. And then also excited to see the Raiders take a guy that they need at the right position, but have it be like the fourth best guy available who is projected yeah. to be like a late second rounder. Cause that's what yeah. we always do. That is, that is very John Gruden like, uh, you know, IE Khalif Farrell uh, was taken well out of when he should have been drafted. And then the lad's name from Ohio state that you guys took last year. Uh, Damon Arnett. Damon Arnett was He's good. I'm, I'm fine with him, but the Clellan Farrell pick is still. Hard. No, I know. But wasn't Damon Arnett like, wasn't he taken way? Like, wasn't he projected yeah. like, the second round? Yeah, he was drafted ahead of where he was projected to go. I didn't hate it at the time, though, because he's still a high upside guy. He, he played well for us. I'm not offended by that. But Clellan Farrell is our third best defensive lineman. If you get a guy, yeah. I think it was like third or fourth. I actually forget when we picked him, but it's just like. You, you can't you can't miss on a pick like that on a position where there's a wealth of talent available. For sure. I can't say I much I watch much BYU football. Obviously there's a lot of hype around Zach Wilson and people are saying that he's probably gonna be the second pick in the draft. Um he looked really good in his pro day. Um but what I have watched a lot of was Ohio State football and I do think Justin Fields is a generational talent. I think he has it all. Like he just like looks like an NFL quarterback or like there's so many like so many people get concerned about like quarterbacks that run, but like he doesn't run to like ru- he runs like to avoid hits and he's like able to like maneuver and he's got a cannon. He's a winner. I mean, I think Trevor Lawrence would be great. I really think there should be more discussion about Fields going number one, but it seems like he might end up being he might end up falling a little bit. But it'll be interesting to see. Um, I was just looking at a mock draft on NFL.com that actually had the bears trading up to the eighth pick and taking Trey Lance, which I would be cool with. Um, they should definitely try and get a quarterback. Cause like neither Foles nor Dalton are the answer. And this is a very quarterback deep draft. And they're, if they draft their pick is 20, there's probably not going to be anyone left. I definitely don't think that they should take like, if they're not going to take a quarterback, they shouldn't trade up. But we were talking about this before we started recording, but like Carolina is an interesting team at eight because they just traded for Darnold. And there's definitely going to be a lot of teams that are going to try and trade up to get a quarterback. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I definitely think the bears are one of them. Um, they have all their future first round picks right now. Um, they do have a lot of defensive players that if they wanted to unload someone, they could, but I'm very nervous that they're going to fuck it up. Yeah. I think Atlanta at the four spot is the other team that's going to be a pretty high leverage pick because they could go with either like a Trey Lance or Justin Fields, whoever is falling to that fourth spot at quarterback. If they want to get their quarterback in the future, have them get tutored by Matt Ryan, who's still producing at a high level. Or they could go with a guy like Kyle Pitts, who seems like just an absolute lock to be a stud at a 
position that's becoming more and more of a weapon. I mean, you got guys like Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller, Zach Ertz. So there's definitely. How do you forget Kittle? I did have a few drinks last night. I I, I didn't go out, but I did have a few drinks, you know, like. Not not hundred percent there, but yeah, Kittle. I mean, there's just all these guys that are just superstars at that position, and like it's it's a matchup nightmare because you either put a linebacker on a guy like that and they're going to get blown past, or you put a safety or a cornerback and they're just going to get overpowered. So I would I would take Pitts if I had a chance to get him. So I, sure. I'm thinking that that's who they take, but they could also move back in the draft or take an offensive lineman. They they, they really go in a couple different directions. Yeah, Atlanta is an interesting team because. They were horrible last year, but it wasn't their offense that was the issue. It was the defense. And Matt Ryan is still very good, but, like, he is getting older. And, like, I don't know how much longer he's going to play. But, like I said, he's never been the issue on that team. So it's kind of a matter of they got to think about, the like, the future and the present. It's like, can we still get four more good years out of Matt Ryan and take, take a guy like Pitts, or do we – like just like essentially they take a quarterback. They're saying that the Matt Ryan years are going to be over soon. Yeah. I mean, they are going to be over somewhat soon, but I mean, like you said, still producing at a high level, they could be competitive. They were really close in a lot of games last year. That's a team that I think could really turn the corner quickly. And I mean, they just have so much talent, like so many former first round picks scattered throughout that team that I think if they have, I mean, a guy like Pitts, like maybe that sets them over the edge and they're able to actually be a very competitive team next year. Or if they take a guy like Lance, I mean, they're definitely set up down the line. Lance is another guy that's interesting to me because he played one game this year in college. So there's just no real film study to go off of. It's all just projection. I don't really know much about him, honestly. I mean, other than the fact that he's kind of like a, a mini Josh Allen kind of guy coming out of a smaller yeah. school. But it'll be interesting to see how he develops. Hey, North Dakota State is like the best. Oh, for sure. Uh, FBS football school. Yeah, they've won a ridiculous number of uh, FBS titles. Yeah. Well, definitely looking forward to the draft Thursday this week. Hopefully the Raiders don't screw it up. The Bears, too. Probably I'll probably, we'll probably be collectively laughing at one another's teams and simultaneously mm-hmm. lamenting over ours on Thursday because yeah. both of our teams are just incompetent. But yeah. you never know. Maybe maybe we won't screw it up this year. Yeah, and we'll do, we'll do a draft recap next week. But thank you for all you legends out there listening. And without further ado, Kai Robbins. All right. We now welcome on a longtime friend, a girl that I think I met in sixth grade at Camp Shy. We ended up going to high school together and reconnecting recently. A legendary listener to the show, Kai Robbins. Kai Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. I feel so honored. Um, I feel like I started listening to the Legends podcast when you first announced that you were having your first podcast. I think I saw it on your Instagram. And I was really interested in it at first because there were a couple of guests that I recognized by name, you know, having gone to Camp Shy, being from, you know, the North Shore area. And I found it to be really relatable as you started to have more guests that even I wasn't familiar with because, you know, they all came from different walks of life and there was something that I learned in each one of them. And also, it's kind of funny. You guys like go on, you end up having really interesting conversations that are sometimes completely off topic and they go in directions I had no idea it was going to go into. And 
it was kind of humorous. And so I really enjoy, and I look forward to your podcast every week. So I'm really honored that you have me as a guest. Well, thank you. We greatly appreciate the positive feedback and we're glad that you enjoy it and enjoyed it enough to want to be a guest yourself. Yeah. I, and I can consider myself a legend now because I listen to your <laughs> podcast, I guess. I think you, you were a legend as a listener, but you're a, a bigger legend now that you've come on. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's legendary listener to legendary guest. Next level. So the reason why we really wanted to have you on, obviously you're friends with Ari, but you have a very good looking Instagram filled with delicious foods. I was getting acquainted with it and found myself getting pretty hungry. There's like 50 different things that I really wanted to try. Um, but you have, I would say, one of the better food Instagrams I've seen. Wow, thank you. That means a lot because there are millions of food Instagrams nowadays. But I try to keep it colorful and introduce dishes that you or you know someone else might not recognize. But I started, I've always had an Instagram that where I posted food for the last few years. And then it tapered off, you know, between 2017 to 2019. And then, you know, 2020 during the pandemic, I think me and everyone else picked up a hobby or something new we wanted to try. And that's when I really got back into my passion for cooking. And I just started posting what I was cooking. And um, I put in extra effort to try and make my dishes presentable for the gram. Um, so I started it back up seriously in October and found that I really love like the art of growing an Instagram uh, organically. And yeah, I've been working on that ever since, you know, trying to keep it consistent, trying to come up with new dish ideas. Videos are new for me, you know, just recently got a bunch of equipment video equipment that will help me increase the quality of the content that I put out. Um, but I, yeah, I appreciate that you actually, you, you're like what I'm posting. Yeah, no, it's definitely unique. I feel like all of the food posts that I come across are all just super basic. You know, you have that like shot over the dish that somebody's making and then it's like really fast and like people throw in like 50 different ingredients. But with yours, I like like how zoomed in it is because you really get like the texture of the food and it seems like you play with texture a lot with the dishes that you put together. And as somebody who can't have phone eat first because I can't take pictures of food, you you crush it. So hopefully you can give us some tips on uh, <laughs> how to get the lighting just right because I can't do it. Thank you. You know what matters the most is, first of all, you have to have natural lighting. If you don't have natural lighting and you're using like your phone light or, you know, the light in your house, you're already, it's already not going to be that great of a picture. <laughs> but um, if you are using your phone camera or lighting in your house, uh, you definitely, it's better to have like an incandescent light in my opinion, rather than a fluorescent light. And if you're using your phone camera um, and you're taking a food pick, you wanna, like when you open your video or you open your camera video and you start recording, you wanna take a second and like tap on the screen to allow it to focus and then start your video from there. Or else you get that big flash and it looks obnoxious. Kai, one thing that I saw in a lot of the dishes that you make is you use a lot of fish and a lot of ahi specifically. And I want to rewind real quick. You know, 
a lot of kids from the North Shore, you know, they go to, you know, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and, and you went to school out in Hawaii. So I want to hear about that. And, and, and also, I just came back from Hawaii and the ahi in Hawaii is just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's interesting. Like I, you know, grew up on the North Shore of Illinois, went to New Trier, and then I decided to go to uh, college in Hawaii because I wanted to do something different. You know, I had also gotten into um, U of I Champaign, which is like, you know, you could go where everyone else is going or you can do something completely different. So I decided to go to Hawaii Pacific University, and it was a completely different college experience where there wasn't a campus, there wasn't a dorm or a dormitories, really. So I was essentially living on Waikiki Strip, which if you're not familiar oh. with Waikiki, it's kind of like oh, the I'm Las familiar. Vegas. Yeah, it's kind of like the <laughs> Las Vegas Strip of uh, Hawaii. You know, you've got your you've got your meth heads and uh, <laughs> prostitutes and tourists, and that's you know, they just fill up the sidewalks and it's crazy and there's commotion. And um, but living down there and, you know, living in a super small, expensive apartment, it's kind of like as expensive as New York. And so you find yourself eating at restaurants a lot or picking up quick meals at um, even convenience stores. They have a lot of that. But the fish was super cheap. So being a college kid, I lived off of seafood out there. You know, you could go to like a local convenience store and there would be like, I kid you not, like a little Asian lady in the back making her own recipes. You know, she'll have like a little stove and she'll she's like either cooking fish or shrimp or spam musubis. And that's what they sold in the convenience store. And while that sounds sketchy, it was actually amazing and delicious. And it's really common in Hawaii to eat from like a local market or a convenience store like that. So that's where I really got introduced to the idea of like um, different ways to cook seafood and prepare it. And that's really where I started cooking because, you know, you could go to a grocery store and pick up a filet of ahi for, you know, five, seven bucks. I also saw on your Instagram that you got broiled mackerel a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's a broiled mackerel, while it's a very like oily and heavy fish, I don't know, there's something about it that's delicious, especially when you, um, you know, you could broil it on each side for five minutes, add a little soy sauce, that's all you need. In my opinion, it's the easiest fish that you can make, because um, you don't have to, like once you get a mackerel filet, literally all you do, put it on a pan, broil it on each side for five minutes, and you're done. Have you guys ever tried mackerel? Are you fish eaters? I, no, I'm a big, big time fish eater. It's hard to say. I've probably had it at some point, but like, you know, I'm a basic bitch when it comes to fish. You know, you got your ahi, your salmon. I really like mahi though. Yeah, mahi's good. It's funny when you go to Hawaii, and I don't know, Ari, if you recognize this, but when you go to Hawaii and if you happen to go to any like local markets, you'll find a filet of mahi-mahi or ahi, you know, anywhere from five to 10 bucks. And you go to a market in Chicago and you're paying like 15 to 20 bucks. It's like so much more expensive just because of the distance. But yeah. That's, that's what makes it more quality in Hawaii because you're closer to the water. 
I mean, it's sometimes if they say that stuff was swimming that morning. No, I encourage you guys, though, to go to a local Asian mart in your area. You know, I know in Chicago, there is H Mart. There is Seafood City. There is one in Arlington Heights called Mitsuwa. And there is a whole plethora of food that you might not have ever seen before. And, you know, it's fun to just like pick up something new and and try cooking with it. Nowadays, there are thousands and thousands of videos on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube of like how to prepare these foods. And that's how I kind of broaden my palate. You know, I would go to a local Asian market, pick up something I had no idea what it was, and then I'd Google it after and learn how, learn how to cook with it. So would you be cooking in your free time then? It was like kind of like a passion from the jump. It was never like, oh, I'm just doing this because I need to survive. Yeah, no, it was a passion from the jump, uh, particularly because I've always just been obsessed with food. You know, like there's there are people who forget to eat like food just isn't top of mind. You know, when they're stressed, they don't eat. I'm the complete opposite. I'm always thinking about food. I'm always thinking about what my next meal is going to be. I'm kind of like obsessive about it. But I tried to turn that into a positive by thinking of, you know, how can I make what I eat meaningful? you know, rather than waste it on, you know, some grocery store processed crap, I could spend more time on it, make it delicious, make it restaurant quality, and, you know, maybe even make it healthier that way. So you were living in Hawaii, which obviously got you really introduced to just like fresh fish and different types of fish. And I know when we were talking yesterday, you worked you worked with a chef that helped influence you. Do you want to kind of tell some of the listeners out there what that was about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So at the beginning of, uh, actually at the end of 2017, when I had come home from Hawaii, I moved back home with my parents. And at that point, I was really passionate about cooking, you know, having lived in Hawaii. So I continued to like make creative dishes and I started to post them to my Instagram with Chicago hashtags. So I would do like hashtag uh, Chicago food blogger, hashtag Chicago food authority. And this chef, um, his name is Charles Webb. He DM'd me and he was like, hey, would you be interested in staging for me one day? And and you spell it like staging. So I had no idea what staging means. So I like Googled it really quick. I had no idea what he was talking about. And really staging just means that, you know, you could work ad hoc, um, sometimes for free, sometimes for money for a chef or at a restaurant. And he asked me to work for him. And I go to his Instagram. He has uh, thousands of, you know, food pictures, but he had like over 50,000 followers. So I'm like, oh, this guy's legit. You know, he's a real Chicago chef. Um, I Googled his name and you find, you know, a few articles. There was like a Michigan, a Chicago, a Michigan Avenue magazine article with him and some of his recipes. So I was like, okay, this guy's not, you know, some random internet creep. <laughs> so yeah, he asked me to come over to his kitchen, you know, talk about food, talk about what I could get involved in. And I think the first, interestingly, the first time I was about to have an event with him, um, I ended up like, like I got into a car crash on the way to work with him. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like I just got into a car crash because I was rushing from my day job 
all the way down to Oak Brook. And my day job is in Deerfield, Illinois. So I was driving all the way past the city to Oak Brook, got into a crash. And I thought this guy's never gonna like, trust me, he thinks that I'm just, you know, he totally thinks that I'm BSing and never going to show up. Uh, But he, he gave me another chance. And I started working for him at various private chef events. So some of them, he was catering for a, you know, a real estate open house. Some of them were private Christmas parties. Some of them were private dinner parties. And working for a chef like that, it was really tough because you hear, you might hear or see on TV shows that some chefs are really um, intense, you know, like Gordon Ramsay, and they kind of have this reputation for being assholes. (laughs) And in the beginning, that's really what I felt like I experienced where this particular chef, he tries to break you in the beginning. And it's, you're under so much pressure because whether you're helping out with a dish or you're serving food to guests, they have the highest expectations. And I had zero experience. I had no idea what I was doing, but um, I could tell that he was trying to put me to the test and I could tell that it was actually making me a better cook and a better just food service uh, worker. Like I was able to understand the ins and outs of the catering business. At one point, he even um, had me help out with some of his accounting, just going through the costs of food service and the costs of labor and even getting to see the money that he was charging really opened my eyes to the reality of how hard of a business food is. You know, whether you have a restaurant or you have a catering business, it's really hard to make it profitable. And I'm not going to lie, after, you know, a few months of working for him on the weekends, I was like, wow, this is a ton of work. You know, you're working so many hours and you're really not getting that much money. And as a money driven person, I was just discouraged by that. And so I started to actually focus more on my marketing day job because I was like, that's where the money's at. Right. And but I still had the passion for food. And so that's why I ended up coming back to it. And I still talk to this step, this uh, chef, Charles Webb, to this day. But I had to pull back on working for him because I wanted to focus on this food blog and I wanted to focus on my day job. Yeah, I feel like that's a struggle that a lot of people come to where you have a side hustle where you're very passionate about it, but then kind of loop or making it uh, lucrative for you, monetizing is the hard part. And like you said, being profitable is difficult. What is, I guess, the biggest expense when it comes to like being a private chef, like, are, is it ingredients? Is it the travel? Is it the time investment versus the amount of actual money that you're making? I guess, like, how, what makes it so difficult to uh, earn money doing that? Yeah, I would, I, I would break it down into three groups. The first group is the cost of the ingredients. And if you're a high paid private chef, you're expected to use the best of the best ingredients. So you might order from Uh, private farms like Maple Leaf Farms, or um, there's this company called Regalis in Chicago. They have the highest quality, you know, caviars and the fishes, and you might order from them. But you're expected to buy whole foods type food, right? So you're paying a ton unless you 
you know, kind of skimp on the quality, of course, but that shows up in the taste of the food. So the cost of the food can be very expensive. And then when you are a private chef or a catering company, the more staff you have helping out, the better quality event you'll host. So you want someone who's bartending, you want someone who's helping in the kitchen to actually cook and plate the dishes, and you want someone who's going to be a quality server. And sometimes you can pay, you know, anywhere from $100 to $300 a head for each staff member that you have helping you if it's just like a nighttime event. But then when you think about it, there's also all this time that you're investing and preparing and getting ready for the event. That's what I think of as like the third element. So those three, those three things together, you have to think of like, okay, well, what am I going to charge for this private dinner event? And just thinking of the cost of food, let's say for one person, the cost of food is uh, $60, right? You might have with for the cost of $60, you might have a three course dinner. So $60 for a three course dinner, the finest ingredients, plus some hors d'oeuvres or appetizers. Then you have um, the cost of your labor as a chef, plus maybe two helpers. So you're out another 600. And so just the cost of feeding that one person, you're now looking at, you know, at least, you know, 150, 200 bucks. That's just to cover the costs. But when you propose to, you know, even someone with a lot of money, hey, if I'm going to do this private dinner for you, it's going to cost uh, $250 a head. They're going to be like, that's insane. I'm not paying $250 a person. You know, that's like wedding uh, price or that's the price of a 30-course a meal at some Michelin star restaurants. So then it's a struggle of, okay, well, I, in order to pay myself and in order to pay for the cost, I need to charge $200 to $300 a person. And I'm kind of exaggerating the numbers a little bit. I think, you know, they could be a little bit lower, but then you're making less money as a chef. So you're, you're really not making a lot. And where I kind of had this major wake up aha moment was the chef that I was working for, I told him that I had gotten a promotion at my day job and he was very curious and he just asked me how much I was making. And I told him and I just kind of saw his jaw drop. And then I later found out that I think even in some of his best private chef years was making a very similar amount. So, and that was very shocking to me because I'm like, this guy's super, you know, celebrity chef status, super popular. You can't get more successful as a private chef than this guy. And he is middle-aged and here I am, I was like 22 at the time making equal amounts. And I was like, is this really the business that I want to be in? It was a major wake up moment about how hard it is to make money in the food industry. But I think going the digital route, like social media is a whole different world and a whole different ball game. And that's why I'm investing my time there. I have experience working in restaurants and well, I worked at Lumalnati's and then I worked at a Mexican restaurant called Uno Mas in Glenview. And I've kind of seen it firsthand where, especially more in the Mexican restaurant, because it was a little more like the, the, like Lumalnati's is like a factory almost. And they just have it down to a science of like, you know, the food they make, but you know, it takes 
so much time to prepare you have to get in there in the morning and basically prepare for the night and then when you're the night's over you got to do a little prep for tomorrow and close up and the margins are few and far in between but it, it really comes down to at that point it's like it's passion and i'm looking at charles webb's website right now and you know he said it says like every dish is like a journey and he like takes you on this journey which just like goes to show like how passionate he is about it but like at the same time like it is really hard to make money and like the margins are slim. Right. Like for a restaurant, a good profit margin is anywhere from like three to 6%. Like if you're a business person, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't go into it knowing that a good profit margin is three to 6%. That's just not worth it. And so I think anyone that starts a restaurant must really be passionate about starting a restaurant or, you know, maybe they have a bunch of, maybe they already have a following where they know it's going to be popular beyond that three to 6% margin. But um, yeah, for someone like the chef that I worked for, and, you know, I've worked for and other uh, private chef experiences, they have to sell their food and their food services as that journey. And I think some of it is they're trying to sell themselves as a chef. They're always, they're also trying to sell their food brand and sure there's true passion behind it, but they're also like blood, sweat and tears behind it. And I think some of the people that work in that industry grind themselves, you know, so thin working food, you know, they wake up at 5 AM and they go to bed at 12 AM and they're not making that much money. So even though, you know, you, they might have a website that says food is a journey and they seem so passionate about it, they are struggling, right? And they're struggling to obtain something more. And I think now in 2020, if you're a, a chef or a private chef um, that's trying to make money in the food service industry and you're trying to strive for higher profits, you probably should be turning to platforms like TikTok or YouTube where you can monetize your online content. Um, I think the potential for profit there far exceeds what you can make just selling edible, tangible food. Yeah, I just looked it up and I think 60% of restaurants fail within their first year. And then thinking back to The Sopranos, who was the most miserable character on the show? It's Artie yeah. Bucco because he's Artie, always complaining yeah. about Vesuvio almost going under. So, I mean, it's a tough business to be in. I feel like, at least in my own exposure to kind of like the food catering business, if you will, over the last year, it's been a lot of virtual stuff, generally for like corporate events that my, my company will sponsor. Is that something that people are turning to where it's like, reduce your overhead by teaching a two hour long cooking class where you don't have to pay for any of it. It's just people paying you to kind of guide them through their journey. Or is that kind of like a less common route that people are going down more of a niche thing? I don't think it's a less common route, but it's one of the many routes that people have pivoted to, right? With something like hosting your own food classes, there are a couple of different ways that I know some people are doing it, whether it's through Patreon, um, where, you know, you have a subscription fee like OnlyFans, or you're going through another food service where people are hosting classes. 
But I think like the idea of hosting food classes in general, it's like a very niche market. You know, there aren't many uh, people who are attending paid food classes. You know, it's probably of a certain age group. It's also, that's a good dating idea. Like if anyone listening needs to, wants to have a creative date idea. Yeah. Buy a, buy a food cooking class and then do it with your date. That's like, I don't know, I'm a female and I think that would be fun. But um, some of the other ways that people, uh, particularly chefs have started to pivot is, you know, I think some of them might have gone more towards private chefing for certain families where you're, you know, living with a family that has enough money to pay for a private chef. I know one chef who uh, started working for like a private resort where they're just kind of like the on-call chef for the resort. And the chef that I worked for in particular, he has always been working on like a digital food series where he hires a food camera crew to come with him to various countries and record him going through the markets, getting the ingredients that he's going to cook with, and then the cameras follow him into the kitchen um, and they, you know, film him cooking and he'll host a private dinner and try and get a few Instagram influencers to attend the dinner so that they can then, you know, photograph what he's cooking and then post it online. And that's how, you know, he kind of gets the money back, which is an interesting concept. Um, I think that's probably something that's unique and hard to monetize. But I think the primary route for chefs these days or cooks, especially the home cook, is, you know, gaining followership on TikTok or Instagram. And some of them just make the food videos to get the followers and they love the um, the gratification of having people love what they create and they're just doing it for pure fun. You know, someone like myself, I would really like to create a recipe website. So I've been working on that. And um, eventually I want to funnel anyone watching my food on social media towards my website. And then you can monetize your website with, you know, various ads and do the same thing on YouTube. And I think that's a good side hustle until it grows enough to where it could become a main source of income. We had a guest on earlier that did have an OnlyFans and she said that, you know, there are chefs on there that post content that people have to yeah, pay for. I- you, do you so have fun. a chefs only OnlyFans? <laughs> no, I was so um, Ariel is that her name? Yeah, yeah I, was I, Ariel. Was, I was so shocked when she said that, and that there are chefs on OnlyFans. I was like, that's genius. I was like, Psh, mind blown. I need to get on OnlyFans stat and get people to pay for my content. Um, but no, I don't. And I think if I did have a cooking OnlyFans, I would probably get fired for my day job just for being on OnlyFans. <laughs> you would just have to convince someone at your office to follow your OnlyFans and then show them that it's actually food. But that would probably be a tough sell. <laughs> that it, Yeah, no, that wouldn't work. It is not LinkedIn friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't post you don't that have to put it on your LinkedIn. I feel like also like you couldn't get fired if you were posting like, hey, I have an OnlyFans that's just for cooking. Here it is. But imagine having that conversation, though, right? It's like you're you're on that platform already. It's about the I think it's the association and the reputation. Yeah. 
Like, especially if you're a customer facing person at your job, yeah. you have to be really careful about what and who you get involved with. No, I, yeah. I think about that with the podcast a little bit. Cause it's like, if you Google my name or Ari's name, the podcast comes up. So like if one of my clients were to ever Google me in theory, this would show up. So it's like, all right, like there's a possibility that anybody could be listening, but also we don't really do anything too crazy on here. So it's not a big deal, but the only fans would definitely raise some eyebrows, especially being that it's behind a paywall. So like, you can't really like just check it out casually. Well, here's the thing though. Let's say she makes the OnlyFans and then someone looks up Kai Robbins and then it pops up Kai Robbins OnlyFans, but you can't see what's on there unless you buy it. They can't be like, we're firing her because she has an OnlyFans. Okay, I wouldn't. That's like, (laughs) if I had an employee who had an OnlyFans and there was just cooking content behind it, I would still question my employee's judgment. Did porn ruin OnlyFans for the chefs? Um, no, you know, I don't think OnlyFans belongs to anyone other than the reputation, other than the reputation that OnlyFans has built, right? But that's why Patreon exists. Mm -hmm. There's Patreon for that. It's basically the OnlyFans, but for whatever you want it to be, you know, you could have a, you could have a Patreon version of your podcast that people have to pay for to access. I would subscribe to the Legends Podcast Patreon. That is a thing. I've, I've listened to podcasts and they'll always talk about the Patreon paywall and like all the exclusive content behind it. I don't pay for it, but yeah, that would be the way to do it. And it is definitely a much more accepted mode of kind of accomplishing the same thing that you could do on OnlyFans for sure. I've heard in some of your prior episodes, um, you've had to bleep some names and I'm just like dying to hear the actual name of the person. So so I, you know, maybe I'll recognize the name or I'll know the person or or I'll look it up, but that's a concept for you guys. Mm. If you want to hear what's behind the bleep, yeah, pay for my Patreon. Yeah, Yeah, you got to pay for it. Yeah, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy to discuss for anyone that wants to reach out, you know, separately. I will not be name dropping on air, but I took like I get it. I know I know what you mean. I think Tim Dillon got kicked off Patreon. Well, he's also kicked off Airbnb, so it's just one of the many. He is, but he was bitching about how he got kicked off Patreon too, which I think is hard to do. No All one's right. safe anymore from anything from any platform. Yeah. No. <laughs> Except for food, I feel like you can't cancel food. Pretty unassailable. Um. True, but you can uh, you can get in trouble for appropriating food, and that's where I think some food bloggers get in trouble. Like, oh, there was a huge scandal with Bon Appetit this year in 2020. Um, you might be familiar with Bon Appetit YouTube channel, or they you know they have a magazine. Um, very famous chefs that come from the Bon Appetit kitchen, and if you don't know, Bon Appetit is part of like the Condé Nast uh, family in New York City. And the I think it's the the main editor, the editor in chief of, of Bon Appetit, who runs the show at Bon Appetit, um, had a reputation for being um, like prejudiced and racist in the sense that some of the um, employees who were people of color who had just as much just as much, if not more talent than some of the Caucasian employees, they were getting paid much less for their appearances in certain videos and even their main content. And it completely, you know, he got canceled as many other people did in 2020. 
But that was that was my first time seeing major food cancel culture, right? You have to be careful about what you make and how you appropriate dishes. Yeah. And employment and discrimination laws apply to all industries. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> the the main theme of it though is um, you have a bunch of people on Instagram and TikTok who are finding out about dishes that have existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years in other cultures. And they're saying, you know, look at me, I discovered this, you know, Dalgona coffee or whatever it is. And people are thinking that that, you know, person discovered the food when it comes from a culture that, you know, has a history behind it. And none of that is explained. Yeah. Food is deeply cultural, and I could definitely see where that would get some people in some hot water. Yeah. Yeah, and one of my favorite things about food is is definitely trying food from just other cultures. Like, I love Asian food. Um, me and Sam are, are big sushi guys. When I was in Vietnam, I mean, I that's when I, like, really got exposed to, like, pho for the first time, and, like, I love that. And then in, in uh, Thailand, they have – in Chiang Mai, it's, like, called Khao Soik, I think, Khao So, something – I feel bad I'm mispronouncing it, but it, it's kind of like a similar soup dish for like, it, it's truly like remarkable what people make like in different parts of the world. But I was going to say, well, what are your, some of your like favorite dishes to make and or eat? Um, definitely a huge sushi fan. Um, I can connect with you in that I love to try different dishes from different cultures. My favorite type of, you know, Asian food is definitely Japanese food. A large part of that is because I am myself a quarter Japanese and my mom's from Japan. So I grew up eating really authentic Japanese dishes, but living in Hawaii, I was introduced to Filipino food. And it was something that, it Filipino food, um, sometimes it's really colorful and sometimes it doesn't always look that pleasing to the eye, especially if it's street food. Uh, but I was encouraged to try it. And that has become my favorite Asian food um, is like Filipino street food. But to cook myself, I most love cooking with Korean ingredients. So, you know, you could get gochujang paste, which is a red pepper paste. It's used to make um, kimchi. Well, the gochujang pepper could be used to make kimchi, but the actual paste is like a sweet, spicy red paste that you could use for basically any dish. And I love cooking with gochujang paste, you know, sesame oil, uh, black vinegar, uh, soy sauce, of course, mirin, which is like a, a rice, uh, sorry, a rice uh, wine, a sweet rice wine. It's hard to say that. I, I think in my in my cooking style, I love to take some combination of American ingredients and cook it in an Asian style with a few Asian ingredients like the ones I just listed, whether it's gochujang or the mirin, the sweet rice wine. And then when I post it to my Instagram, I love to like call out that it's a flavor combination that is something that I created or it's something new or it's something that, or I'll post the recipe usually on there so you can try it yourself. Have you been to Japan? I have, but not in my adulthood. Okay. So I definitely need to go back. Gotcha. So I, I don't know how familiar you are. The Gaiseki dinners. Have you ever had one? Yes. Okay. It's kind of like um it's kind of like um a designer bento. 
Yeah, exactly. All right. So if someone rolled out a Gaiseki, and for the listeners who may be uncultured, it is like the biggest hodgepodge of kind of ingredients in Japanese food that a Westerner like me had zero idea what any of it was. How much of that food would you kind of like be able to dissect? Like if you were kind of like looking at a Gaiseki dinner, would you be able to kind of pick apart like, okay, this ingredient is this paste and this is this type of fish or is it just as kind of crazy to you as it was to me because I was I was mind blown by it <laughs> um I'm, I'm like really impressed that you know what gaiseki is but I would I would probably be able to dissect and understand um all of it wow um but but like I will say you know my mom my mom is from Japan she grew up there so growing up my household had all of these crazy Japanese ingredients that other people that other kids my age probably would have barfed at (laughs) so I was the kid who brought really weird lunches to school and I grew up going to a private Jewish school um, that was kosher so I would get in trouble for bringing some of my Japanese dishes to school so I was always I was always around like the weird and the unknown uh, ingredients and then having lived in Hawaii I was introduced to another plethora of Asian ingredients that were Filipino, that were Thai, and I got to learn about them that way. So that's it's something I pride myself on is being able to explain Asian dishes, especially when I go with my friends to Chinatown or, you know, various Japanese restaurants. So you said you were a listener. When I was looking at the Gaiseki for the first time, like not recognizing any of it, I was just like, all right, I have a deathly tree nut allergy and a dairy allergy like I have zero idea what any of it was it was all just like a leap of faith I told (laughs) I was staying at like a ryokin which is like a kind of traditional Japanese kind of hotel situation Mm -hmm. and they were really accommodating but the language barrier was definitely there which I was super perplexed I needed you there so you could have uh, (laughs) quelled my fears I don't know if I could have um ensured that there were no tree nuts in the Gaiseki. But did did you ever, did you have a reaction at all or were you no, in the clear? I was all good. Actually, so I was doing a lot of research before going because I knew the language barrier was going to be a little bit tough and a lot of stuff just isn't in, in English there. But they don't use tree nuts in really too many of their dishes. I think it's more of a Southeast Asian um, yeah. element. But I don't think they really had nuts just like naturally in Japan. Other than maybe like water chestnuts, which aren't a nut. So ginkgo nuts. Those are the ginkgo only. Nuts. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I apparently avoided those because I'm really tall. But I did bring my my EpiPen. Good. <laughs> so Kai, you've listed a lot of ingredients that all sound really amazing for listeners and me who would want to build out their refrigerator or sauce seasoning palette. What would be kind of your first place to start if I'm looking to kind of spice up things in the kitchen? Yeah. So first step is going to um, an Asian mart. There are a few chains that are national, like H Mart as a classic one. They have multiple locations. Chicago has Seafood City, H Mart, Junbu on Kimball, and um, Mitsuwa in Arlington Heights. And in all of these stores, they all have one thing in common, which is there there is a designated sauce aisle. And it will look very obvious to you because you'll see a ton of glass bottles. <laughs> So I would start with a few things. One is 
If you don't already cook with sesame oil, I would definitely get yourself some quality sesame oil. The sesame oil that you can get at a, an American grocery store is definitely not the same as the sesame oil that you can get it at an Asian mart. So let me see the brand. I think it's Kagoya is the, is the br good brand of sesame oil. Let me make sure I'm right here. Oh, it's Kadoya. Okay. Kadoya sesame oil is the best sesame oil. Um, I would be careful about, um, you know, using sesame oil for every dish because sesame oil doesn't mix with everything. But if you're cooking an Asian dish, I would use sesame oil. Uh, the second ingredient that I would get that I think enhances most dishes is mirin, which is that rice wine and it's a sweet wine ingredient it's not really alcoholic that much but um it enhances many dishes in that it kind of balance balances out the sweet and the salty so whatever you're cooking whether you're frying something or you're making uh, a miso soup uh always add one to two tablespoons of mirin rice wine and you'll notice a difference you know when you go to a Japanese or Korean restaurant very often your dish will have uh, mirin rice wine in it and that's you know one of those things that just makes things taste better kind of like MSG <laughs> um, right also, you know, if you're starting off, you know, cooking an Asian dish, buy a bottled teriyaki sauce. You know, you can marinate any meat in teriyaki sauce. You know, just, you know, pour a bunch of teriyaki in a bowl, uh, dice up your meat, whether it's chicken or, you know, steak, cubed steak, throw it in a bowl and just let it sit for a few hours and then take your sesame oil, put it into a pan and fry it up. Uh, you could do this with vegetarian ingredients like tofu too. And um, that's a like a great place to start to get familiar with the combination of soy sauce and other sweet flavors. And then um, uh, on the Korean side, I would recommend getting gochujang paste, which is that red pepper paste. And you don't need a lot of it when you're cooking, you know, maybe just one to two tablespoons. But you can mix gochujang with sesame oil and a bunch of other, you know, sauces, create your own barbecue sauce that way, or even just add gochujang to your barbecue sauce. It's a way to like spice any dish up, in my opinion. So something else I really wanted to ask is mm -hmm. what is your go-to appliance? Because on the IG, you have a sous vide. You have yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of very intricate looking mixers. Like which of those do you think is like the most quintessential? I think there's a difference. Like for me, my quintessential uh, appliance is my rice cooker uh, because I, it's like so trusty. I know that I'm going to have quality sushi rice by using a rice cooker and it, it's not messy. Whereas if you cook rice in a pan, it can get very messy. But that's because, you know, growing up in an Asian household, I eat rice with so many dishes but other than that what do i use a lot oh um my most convenient and best kitchen purchase was probably my immersion blender and hand mixer so it's just like a handheld motorized stick that has an attachment 
for an immersion blender, which can blend anything like, you know, the immersion blender piece is the same thing that's basically at the bottom of your regular blender. It just happens to be on the stick. So you could stick it in a bowl, you could stick it in a cup um, or stick it in a pot and blend anything you're cooking. But there's also an, an attachment for a whisk. So you could, you know, whisk up eggs for an omelet. Um, and there's also an attachment for uh, milk frother. So you can make lattes that way. I think it was like one of those $34 Amazon purchases that I thought was the best investment I could have made. All right. I'm not going to lie. Like this has made me like super hungry. Like just all this talk about food. And like I may have been scouring DoorDash for some, some Asian food. Maybe I haven't really eaten a lot for dinner tonight. So I might have to double up. I know you live in Delaware now, but you did, you are from Chicago. You spent a lot of time in Chicago. What are some of your favorite restaurants for those that are not as skilled cookers as you are? Uh, that just want to go out and enjoy enjoy the same types of foods that you love. Um, well, I hope the places that I list are still open post COVID. Um, but my favorite go to late night spot is uh, the Izakaya at Momotaro in West Loop. The Izak so there's Momotaro, which is like a very famous Japanese restaurant in West Loop. It's very famous. Oh, I think I've heard of this one. Yeah, that that there's like the main floor, which is like the upstairs. It's very fancy and kind of, in my opinion, a waste of money to eat there. But underground, if you take the stairs and go downstairs, there's an izakaya. And izakaya basically means like Japanese bar, Japanese bar food, where you could get quick appetizer dishes and uh, quality mixed drinks. And it's a really low lit cool like you know west loop bar but they changed their menu they were hopefully if they're still open they change their menu very often which to me is a sign that there is a passionate chef behind the restaurant right and one of their staple dishes is this pub royale burger that i think is one of the best burgers in chicago they use like um fried bao buns as the burger bun which is like, if you're not familiar with really what a bao bun is, it's one of those fluffy steamed Chinese buns that are like really squishy. And then their meat of the burger is like really juicy. I think there's two layers, um, you know, like the cheese and lettuce and all of that. But it's to me, one of the most quality Chicago burgers that there are. And then there are a bunch of other cool dishes and flavor combinations that I've not seen before. They always change things up and then they have great cocktails there. Um, that was like one of my, when I was, you know, on the dating hinge scene, that was like one of my favorite places to go. I've actually been there. My girlfriend's old company had a, I think a holiday party there. So we had a fixed menu, but they did have a sushi shop just making sushi the whole time. So it was like handmade right in front of you. It was really good. But I think the vibes are the best part down there. Cause like you mentioned, it's just like a nice, like dimly lit, cool spot. And it feels very authentic too. Did not get that burger. I definitely need to go back and try that. Yeah, I would. So very often if I was like out with friends uh, in the city somewhere, I would, you know, take my friend Jenna or one of my girlfriends. And, you know, when you're, you're drunk, you just like need something good to eat. I would be like, I'm going to Izakaya Momotaro. Get in the Uber. <sighs> it's like a, 
you know, it's like a $16 burger with fries, which is actually not that bad for a downtown burger, but it does not disappoint. That's a good spot. Ari's in my spot used to be Soul Taco. Did you ever go yeah. there? No, I've never been there, but I've heard about I've heard about Soul Taco. It's like definitely trash food in terms of ingredients, but it's this Korean style burrito place mm-hmm. and the Korean beef with the, the kimchi and the Korean rice and the spicy mayo, like it just like goes yeah. together so perfect. And back when we used to go out, I would I would go there quite frequently. Yeah, that's a great place. I would also encourage anyone in Chicago to explore Chinatown. It's like one of the one of the most underrated neighborhoods, in my opinion, which it's funny because to some people, Chinatown is like the go to spot. Right. But for another large portion of Chicago, they've never been to Chinatown. If you've never been to Chicago, Chinatown, just try a random place or, you know, go to a hot pot restaurant. I think it's called the one that I like is called Little Lamb or Happy Lamb Hot Pot. Um, but you can get a ton of meat or seafood and vegetables, noodles. They give you this huge pot in the center of your table. Um, it's on a hot plate and you can get a mix of like a spicy broth or a non-spicy broth and then choose when you add your ingredients to the hot pot. You just wait a few minutes for it to boil and then you get a bunch of dipping sauces that you could dip it in and it's delicious so that's a, that's another i have like a ton of good date ideas go to a hot pot place that's a good date idea we need your website to have a suggested and approved restaurant list yeah i'll, I'll add a i'll add a tab for that <laughs> <laughs> so um, in addition to the instagram you mentioned obviously patreon and the website like what are kind of your next steps that you see for yourself as you try to continue growing everything is it try to get more followers is it maybe try to take like go on TikTok, get uh, viewers that way? Like what's your what's your game plan? Yeah, my game plan is to first finish building uh, my website. I've, you know, I'm working on a WordPress website and I want to add a good base of recipes to the website. And the goal is to have a website to be like the main go-to destination that I can um, place ads into. So that's like my one call to action on all of my social media platforms. So as much as I would love to like keep investing more time into Instagram or, you know, start a TikTok or a YouTube channel, none of that counts if I'm not driving traffic to one central place. And so I want that one central place to be a website, um, which, you know, takes some time because I'm always I'm not a web developer by any means I'm just trying to do this myself on you know Bluehost and WordPress and googling how to and buying different plugins to try and do it myself so it's very time consuming but definitely want to get a website up and running in the next few months and then from there um, I'm going to start experimenting with filming you know, perhaps YouTube or TikTok videos, more in like a vlog style where you can actually see me cooking a dish and I could, you know, talk about various topics while I'm cooking with you. Nice. 
what do you think is like the best path to drive people to the website? Because I've heard a lot of people complain about how TikTok is like a great place to get a ton of exposure, but then mm-hmm. it's not great at like the call to action because people are just swiping to the next video. Do you think it's like converting it to, I, I guess, like how would you mm-hmm. do that? Yeah, the the best place for website hosts is Pinterest. Mm. Um, every, you know, most most people in the market to look for recipes, whether they're, um, you know, like young, single or a wife or a mother cooking for her kids, when you, when they're Googling recipes, most times they'll either just like start on YouTube or Pinterest and the Pinterest leak links directly to your website. So I've seen a few of the more famous YouTube blog vloggers start their success on Pinterest, which I'm not very familiar with Pinterest, but I've actually seen a few of my Instagram, you know, foodie friends start on Instagram, very slow traction on Instagram. And they were just like, okay, I'm going to build a website and start on Pinterest. And then they blow up on Pinterest because all it takes is, you know, that one post to go viral. And the, the, the issue with TikTok, too, is that not only is it just such quick content where people aren't interested in exiting TikTok, it's the the audience is so young that they're not the ones that are actually paying for the products that are within ads. Right. Like the older you get, the more the more, you know, money and capital you have to actually purchase something when you click on an ad you know i find myself like i can get really distracted by instagram ads nowadays um, and that can come in many forms you know on youtube youtube pays their creators based on the age of their audience so i think it's like called a cpm it's like the cost per i forgot what the m stands for but if your audience is very young, you'll have a lower CPM. So you'll get you'll get paid less per viewer because your audience isn't clicking on the ad and buying what the ad is offering. The older your audience is, the higher you'll get paid per view, per viewer. Yeah, you want that C-suite age range, like the 40 to 50. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I well, think it's a, you know, maybe like 30, yeah, like 25 to 45. Well, what I was going to say is you might be thinking about it wrong because uh, some of those TikTokers like a, like a Bryce Hall or Charlie D'Amelio are making millions of dollars. And if you put the right content out there, they could reach out to you and, uh, and maybe hire you. But, so there is – it's funny. You know, are you familiar with um, Adam Witt? He, I don't went know to, he went to Nutrier. He has a TikTok and Instagram called Omnivorous Adam. I think he went to Kansas, um, so he knows a bunch of like the, you know, KU guys. But he's he's around our age, and he blew he kind of blew up on TikTok, and he's close to two hundred thousand Instagram followers now. And he went to Nutrier. I think he's just the grade above us, Ari. And I've been thinking, and I've like reached out to him to ask him like you know questions about his strategy, and. I think because he is so TikTok famous and his audience is so young, I like I'm just making assumptions, but I feel like it that makes it harder for sponsors to want to 
sponsor you, right? Because if you're, if your audience, I don't know, I'm, I'm making really bad assumptions about what his audience is, but I'm just um, making assumptions based off of who I see in his comments section. But that's the thing with, with TikTok creators as well is you, you get paid cents if you're a really popular TikToker, unless you're getting sponsored for your posts. Yeah. Yeah. Check out, check out Omnivorous Adam. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at him he right be, now. He would be a good guest too, because I mean, he's really blown up in popularity on um, Instagram and TikTok. That would be, you know, that's a next, you know, conquer for us, because every guest we've had so far, we either both or one of us knows. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, I mean, this. Guy I already got the foodie. I don't need another one. I don't care. These <laughs> forty-nine thousand followers. Like, I got you. I'm curious, do you guys, um, like, what percentage of what you eat is ordered out or at a restaurant, and what percentage is stuff that you cook? I cook for myself. So I, I'll, I'll give you my weekly diet. It's kind of depressing. So on Sunday nights, I'll cook four nights worth of food, including Sunday nights, and it's generally like a chicken with rice and vegetables or like chicken red sauce and pasta. My girlfriend thinks it's depressing and doesn't need it but I do because I, I, I always look at food that I cook for myself is just like a means to an end because it's like a cheaper way to eat yeah and the time that I spend doing it is like not my priority so I want to kind of just like get through it so that's Monday through Thursday and then I'll do like something quick for Thursday maybe end of Friday not really as much anymore now that we're starting to go back to restaurants but I'll have like a Trader Joe's frozen meal that I'll cook up and then Friday and Saturday, I'll generally go out to eat um, for dinner or order in. So really just two nights a week for me. I, I'd probably say the same as Sam. I, you know, I work from home. So, you know, I eat breakfast at home. I usually eat lunch at home. Sometimes I'll walk to Chipotle and, you know, I, I try to keep costs down. So I do, you know, make big grocery store runs and then go through all that food. I enjoy eating out, but I'm probably like 70, 30, 80, 20 home. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Do you have like a go-to grocery store? Some people are like dedicated to Trader Joe's. Some people so, are against. I, I really like Trader Joe's, but I stopped going there in the pandemic because they made everyone wait in line and I didn't want to feel like I was in Soviet Russia. So <laughs> I stopped so I stopped going there as like a protest. So I go to Mariano's. I really like Mariano's. Um they have a like a really good meat counter and a really good deli counter, a lot of different fresh foods, many more options than Trader Joe's. Um, I did hear Trader Joe's did cut the line now and now they are pretty much letting everyone in. So I might have to make a, a turn back there. It's very cheap, but um, you know, Mariano's has just got like, you know, good meat, whether it's fish, chicken, steak. I, and, I, and I just like enjoy going there. They do. Mariano's has um, aisles that are a mile long, which is like a huge, <laughs> a huge drawback. But, um, you know, Mariano's got bought out by Kroger a couple yeah, of years ago. That. And that really changed, that really changed things for me and my, my impression of Mariano's. Yeah, Mariano's is a little bit overwhelming in my mind. I like the Trader Joe's because it's simple, but that's probably not what you would go for. Because I'm, I'm just going there and they have like one of everything. Like yeah. Soviet Russia. 
you know, <laughs> but in Mariano's, you have choice that there's like capitalism everywhere. There's like 50 different yeah. brands of cereal and a hundred different types of peanut butter you could get. It's like L- too much for me. Listen, I didn't start comparing Trader Joe's to Soviet Russia until they started making the line. The one choice thing never really bothered me that much. <laughs> so Sam, I'm interested, you know, you're a meal prepper. Mm-hmm. Um, what you cook for your meal prep, is it typically the same week to week or do you change it up or do you ever, you know, look up recipes to kind of spice up your meal prep? So this is probably the part of my personality that I'm the most ashamed of. It is very similar week to week. I like to think of myself as a pretty interesting person, but the food that I eat is super boring. I do try to change up the way that I prepare the chicken though. So I'll either get chicken breast or chicken thighs. I'll normally switch off. And then sometimes I'll do the chicken thighs in like a vinaigrette marinade for a few hours and put them in the in the broiler in my oven and then mm-hmm. get them a little crispy. Like that's like on a week where I'm pushing it, like I'm preparing in advance, like I'm, I'm putting the marinade in a couple hours before I cook. But like this week was bad for me where I just put a couple chicken breasts on a uh, Pyrex, baked it for 30 minutes, baked some veggies and then. I have a rice cooker too, which that thing is my backbone and that's it. So I try to season it up a little bit. I try to vary it there, but I mean, Trader Joe's doesn't have a whole lot of seasonings either by comparison to a Mariano's or like a traditional ages market or something like that. So it's kind of like everyday seasoning or salt or like maybe some paprika if I'm feeling crazy, like Nothing, nothing too phenomenal. I try to vary it up in some way, shape, or form each week, but it's it's pretty consistent if you really drill down into it. But that's what, kind of what I was saying in the beginning, where it's like there are people who care, right? They care about everything that they eat, and then there are some people who are just like, I need to feed my body because my body needs food, and you don't really, you know, care as much about what it is. But um, so you, as someone who, you know you're not as invested in, you know, the actual food that you're eating on a week, weekly basis, what would it take for you to entice you to, you know, change your routine? Is it, you know, could it be an interesting post that catches your eye on social media or can you just see yourself not changing? Mm, I think for me, it's just convenience. So if, yeah, So the other reason why I like Trader Joe's actually is because I just know where everything is at this point. So for me to like break out of that, it would need to be something that like is in the aisle next to what I'm normally getting. And that's kind of how I actually do branch out. It's just like, oh, like I haven't had asparagus in a little bit. So I'll do asparagus instead of broccoli or something like that. So it's kind of a combination of like physical location in a grocery store, but then also just knowing how to make stuff. That's the other thing about meal prepping for me. I know exactly how long I need to prepare stuff for. I know exactly how much seasoning makes sense versus is too much. The vinaigrette, I like know kind of generally the proportions that I like when I make it. So it's, it's hard for me to see myself ever like really branching out from that unless I got a lot more time. I think if I had a lot more time in the day, I would try to be more like, explorative with recipes. But I started meal prepping a couple of years ago, just out of necessity because I was on a really tough project and just didn't have time to cook for myself each night. And then yeah. the meal prepping thing just kind of turned into a habit. And it's honestly, I just enjoy the time that I have back from it. So it's like, it doesn't, it can't take that much time and it's got to be simple for me to do, but I'm not opposed to changing it. It's just like been something I've been doing for a while. Sam, 
That was one thing about Trader Joe's, though, that I also like was like, you know where everything is. And like, if I forget something, I don't have to walk very far to go get it. Whereas Mariano's, like, I've forgotten yogurt before and yogurt is like on the opposite end. And I like, it's literally a half mile. Yeah, you just give up. I've been struggling with the time piece. Um, You know, like every day I, most of the, so most of the dishes that I post on my Instagram stories, it's not stuff that I'm cooking for myself, but really it's stuff that I'm cooking like for my boyfriend. And I, you know, had to have a talk with him the other day. I'm like, look, dude, I, I, I need to make time for other things, you know, like I can't cook like this anymore. <laughs> I've like set the, I've set expectations too high and <laughs> now I need to figure out like a meal prep plan. But that's where I've been struggling is like finding time to balance my day job work and this venture with, you know, Instagram and my website and also, you know, trying to show my boyfriend that I care for him by, you know, making him dinner at the long, at the end of his night, which is a very long work day. Um, I've like really been toggling and struggling with how to balance what I'm passionate about with, uh, which is food with my day job. Yeah. And how have you kind of been doing that recently? I guess like, is it just everything that you're doing with your passion is like taking up your free time or? Not necessarily. I just wish I um, could spend more time on my passion. And I'm, I'm at like an impasse in a certain age where in order to advance my career and my day job, I should really be considering, you know, studying for my GMAT and getting into a graduate school program. Um, that would that would definitely squash any free time I have to work on my passion for food in a serious way so it's like okay well I'm at a crossroads do I you know go the MBA route and you know follow my marketing career or do I make a switch into something much more unstable like you know a social media food brand which I have much more to be honest I have much more fun doing that but it's like that that's such a risky pipe dream and I, I, I've been struggling with that. And some of the ways that I've been handling that is making sure that I'm not spending too much time beyond what I get paid for on my day job, right? So like if I had a project, I used to work 10, 12 hours a day at my day job because I really wanted to excel and exceed. And I was working probably more hours than I should have. Whereas now, like I'm really trying to like relegate my work day to, you know, that eight to nine hour mark, which is what, you know, you get paid, what the typical worker gets paid to do. And that's a struggle too, because then you feel like you're not getting as much done as you used to. And I feel like, wow, I used to accomplish more in my day job. And that, you know, that affects my morale for myself and my psyche because I feel like I'm not as high of a performer but I think that's actually what makes what makes a good employee is someone who knows how to find a balance between home life and work life and not overexerting yourself to the point where you hate what you do but it's a it's a it's like a struggle and I think about it every day it like consumes me yeah and I definitely hear you on the front of 
employers want you to use your time off. They want you to have free time to do things because otherwise people are going to leave. So it's kind of like on you. And I, I feel this too, as an employee to not like minimize the amount of time that I'm spending at work, but it's just being more efficient with yeah. it. But I mean, there are just certain times where you just get hit with a, a boatload of things you got to do and you just got to put your head down. I think the point that you were making about kind of whether or not you would ever make the jump into something a little bit more risky kind of reminded me of something that actually that our guest Davis, I don't know if you listened to his episode, he had actually posted about on LinkedIn. And it's kind of like an anecdote about how if he was going to start a gym, he wouldn't just one day quit his job and pay $100,000 for a physical space to open a gym, he would try to teach an exercise course in a park for like 10 people because then there's no overhead. He doesn't have to pay for space. If people don't show up, then it's kind of like a low risk. And, and then the point is, if you're able to do that, then you scale it up and you have now a, like a regular exercise course, you like become an instructor and then you kind of make the big jump. So it's like incremental steps. What you kind of have right now is like actually like you've proven to yourself that it can be successful. So now I feel like it's kind of, you're, you're at that crossroads where it's something that you know you could potentially do, but now it's just like a matter of, do you want to actually pull trigger and do it? But at least you're not tied to it necessarily. Like you haven't like bought a restaurant and like, like Artie Buco and you're like yeah. mortgages on it. So you have flexibility right. at least, you know? And if you do a social media or website route, like you're never going to be, in debt to that. It's really just a time commitment and opportunity cost if you were to leave your other job. Right. Right. Exactly. First of all, you know, if you, if you're ever considering like making a leap in your career like that, you definitely need to have, you know, at least six months to two years worth of living expenses saved up. And to be honest, that's something that I did, you know, 2020 when the stocks were like going crazy in the profits, I sold off 10% of my portfolio. Because I was like, if I ever wanted to, you know, take a leap or, you know, do something risky, I want to have some extra like liquid cash to fall back on. And if I don't use it, then I could reinvest it later when the stock market inevitably crashes in a couple years or whatever. But um, I started to like make those like small steps to prepare myself for whichever which way I decide to go in this fork in the road, but I'm still in the middle of it. And that's where I think things, that's where I feel like I'm wasting my time almost because if I'm staying uh, at my corporate job and I'm, you know, just continuing to work there without taking the steps I need to further my career, like getting my MBA, then I'm just, I'm just coasting in that lane. Right. And if I don't have enough time that I feel like I want to invest in building a website and expanding or focusing on the right social media platforms, then I'm also coasting in that lane. And that's what I felt like I've been doing lately as I'm just kind of like coasting on Instagram and and on Instagram, and I'm feeding the Instagram machine very slowly. And I'm also feeding my day job very slowly, but I'm just like coasting in the middle. And I'm like, where, where is this going? <laughs> it doesn't matter which way I take, but I need, feel like I need to pick something. That, that made me think of something. First of all, I think you're doing a great job. And also like, 
life just kind of like happens sometimes. And like yeah. you said, like Charles Webb DM'd you on Instagram and like all of a sudden you go and you start working for him. So like the one thing I learned, especially like, and me and Manny have talked about this with just like content is like, you gotta just like keep putting it out there yeah. and like keep working at it. And like some posts are going to do better than others. Some podcasts are going to get more views or downloads than others are. But like, as long as you keep at it, like, and a good attitude, like you will make it happen. But what you were talking about made me think of Damon John from uh, Shark Tank. He started FUBU. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I read about him was while he was trying to start or like turn FUBU into like a brand, like he was a waiter at Red Lobster and like he liked working there and he like didn't want to quit. And he would work there during the weekend on weekends at night. He would bring home food every night. So he had food so he could save money doing that. And then on, when he had time, he would go down to the, to the city in, in New York and he would, you know, wear his brands. He would go into stores, try to sell his brands. He'd go to trade shows. So, like, you don't need to, like, there's, like, this huge misconception, like, in the, man, it's like what you said, what Davis said, is, like, that you just have to, like, push all your chips into the center when you don't necessarily have to. You could slowly build your way up, which is what you're doing right now. It's just you haven't necessarily struck gold on monetizing it yet exactly exactly and also I, you know it's it's a little different if it depending on how much you enjoy what you're doing in the day job that's actually paying you right like in 2020 i was working on so many projects that were it was just so heavy on me it was emotionally draining some of these projects because they were such huge lifts and it was during the pandemic. And I invested so much of myself into it that it almost made me resentful of the work that I do on the daily. So then when I found this or reignited my passion for food, I formed this attitude within me that's like, I just want to spend all my time on food. And, you know, I don't care about <laughs> the other thing anymore, which of course I do. And I, I try every day to excel at my day job and perform um, as good, if not better than I have in the past. But do I truly love that? Um, you know, that's probably changed over the last year. And that's, it's eating away at my soul, not mm -hmm. being able to do what it is that I truly love at the same time I am money I'm a money driven person I like I'm not apologetic about saying that and that's like a huge problem because what it is that I'm super passionate about isn't necessarily like a money making industry yeah well the thing that you were saying about the GMAT and your MBA like that could theoretically kind of put you in a position where you could make a decision down the line, but either way, you'd be better positioned one way or another. Because if you got your MBA, you could still go the corporate route and make a lot of money, more money right. than you're making now, probably. Or if you come out of that MBA and you kind of have an idea about how you could really monetize, then that puts you in a position to excel there as well. So, I mean, that's a thing that a lot of people do. And I mean, we're still pretty young also. That's a thing mm -hmm. that we got to keep in perspective too. Because like you could get in your MBA when you're 35. It's not super right. common, but you could do right. it. And then you could quit your job tomorrow and do the chef thing for two years and it might not work out. You could always go back. So we definitely have the luxury of a lot of time, but the quarter life crisis is very real. I, I totally get where you're coming from on that. And I, I have the same issue too. Like sometimes 
I, I just like I'll be thinking and I, I did just get a new job. So I'm not like it, it hasn't been as bad lately. But sometimes I just think I'm like, what am I doing? Like I was like, like, yeah. I, I feel like I should be doing so much more like this can't be it. But at the end of the day, like it's a beauty about like living in America and just, you know, being a person is like you could really do whatever you want. You just have to do it. Like most people just are either too afraid to do it or they're just like like it, we, we've talked about this on a show with Matias too but like there's there's definitely fear of success as well as fear is failure like people are afraid of like actually trying to like put themselves out there yeah if you so uh, Ari I'm curious at that point that you were at where you were like I'm mm. not sure you were you were questioning you were like what am I doing um, was it the actual like day-to-day responsibility and job of what you were doing or was it more related to your trajectory or your income that you were? It was, it was a little both. So I, I left my job at Coyote. I was doing carrier sales there and things like I, I had a really good run there. It just like was kind of time to leave. So I did and I went to this small Canadian company and I mean, I, I like don't give a fuck if he's listening. It doesn't matter to me. But, like I hated my boss and uh, not going to name names, not even going to put name the company name, though, because, you know, I, I got class. I'd be like that. But I hated <laughs> them. And I just like was kind of thinking, like, you know, what you know, what am I doing? Like, like they said I could work remote so I could travel, which made me happy. But like just like the work was like there was no substance to it. And I ended up going out with a few friends one night and meeting this met the ceo of the current company i work for called molo solutions and he's like you should come work for me and that's kind of how it all went down long story short and that that definitely like made me feel better you know not that i like felt really bad before that i just felt like i could be doing more with my life and i like wasn't even necessarily looking for a job or looking for a way out but that just like kind of happened. I'm doing customer business development for them now. Started about three weeks ago. I'm feeling pretty good about it. That's awesome that you were in the right time at the right place. And I think yeah, exactly. like you're at, you were in the right attitude to even. That, but that's them. what I was saying. Like that that's life. Like sometimes it's just like that's what happens. Like, you know, Charles Webb just DM'd you on Instagram. I happened to go out with a few friends and we ran into him and we started talking and it just worked out like that. Right. Uh, yeah, I'll be waiting for my moment, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, you have to keep putting yourself out yeah. there to do that. Like maybe I was like lucky that I was in the right place, wrong, right place, right time. But like, you know, with this podcast, like we were like, I was like telling like some one of our friends was like, you know, you guys ever like think about like taking a break for like, you know, a couple of weeks. And I was like, well, we, we had to take a break because we were traveling, which is aside the point. But I was like, no, like full steam ahead, like keep putting episodes out because you just like never know. You never right. know like who's listening and like, you know, maybe like we'll get like Dave Portnoy on one day or something, which would be really cool. But like, I, you know, like you just never know what's going to happen. Or when you, Kai Robbins, Celebrity Chef, blows up, people will come back and listen yeah. to this, and we'll get residually famous off of you. And when Ariel, Ariel Kaplan's OnlyFans hits the top charts, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, she'll say link in bio, and it'll go to the Legends podcast. <laughs> that would be awesome. That's hilarious. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm figuring out what to do with how to balance my time, and you know, also some of my investments you know when you 
when you're, I guess when you're in a position where you ha have the privilege to have the choice of choosing what to do with the next step in your career, I, on one hand, that is, it's phenomenal to, and, and feels really freeing to have that choice. On another hand, it's very daunting, you know, right. to um, figure out and decide if you're making the right choice or if you're making the right risks. Um, but that's very good advice that you gave me to just, you know, like I don't have to put all of my eggs in one basket and one basket. I don't have to be all or nothing. I could find a balance between the two, which I, I've been doing. Um, I just have, I have a fear that in balancing that I'm not putting a hundred percent into one or the other. And I'm just 50, 50 percenting both of them, you know? Well, as uh, Yoda once said, do or do not, there is no try. One of my yep. favorite quotes. But you're definitely doing the chef. And I think, or chef, chefing. <laughs> so chefing. I, I respect it. And I think, I think you're doing a fantastic job with it. Thank you, guys. I, I really appreciate it. Because there, there's a ton of hours that go into it. You know, every weekend I have to dedicate you know, eight to 10 hours, at least on a Saturday or a Sunday to making dishes, you know, filming takes forever. And then there's that, you know, editing, video editing that I do on a daily basis. Um, but I love it. I like, like when I'm involved in it and I'm actually cooking the dishes and I'm actually editing the videos, I love what I'm doing and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So at least I'm like grateful to have found that and reignited that passion and get to work on it. Yeah. Realistically speaking, I mean, you're ahead of the game in that you've actually found something that you care that much about. Most people don't even have kind of a side hustle that they're, they love. So I'm, I'm jealous in a way that you have that already. Well, it's not something you, it's not something you need to have either. It's just about what, what are you good at? And, mm -hmm. you know, monetizing what it is that you're good at. Some people are good at, a, th a thousand things some things some people are really expert in one or two things and that's completely fine 100 percent. okay um, as we close things out is there anything you want to leave us with um anything you want to plug i know the instagram is it's kai robbins and it's popping for anyone who is listening is there anything else we can check you out on uh, yeah, absolutely. So my my main social media right now is it's Kai Robbins on Instagram. That's it's I T S Kai K I Robbins with two B's R O B B I N S. I'm always posting recipes on there, and eventually I will have a link in my bio and all of my posts for a West recipe website. Uh, so that's coming soon, but yeah, go ahead and give me a follow and stay tuned with what I have coming up in the next few months. That was a phenomenal interview, Kai. Um, it was honestly great catching up with you. I just ordered some Chinese food. I know we were mostly talking about Japanese food, but it was it was the best deal available right now. <laughs> but I mean, I wanted some Asian food after talking. You just got to get some uh, white wine and you can maybe like chef it up a little bit more on your own. Cause we, we know what yeah. to get now. Mix it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mix it in there. No, okay. thank you guys. Thank you guys so much for inviting me and talking with me. I got great advice from you guys. And that's actually what I get on a weekly basis when I listen to your podcast. So I'm a true legends fan. <laughs> well, now oh, you're you a true legend guest. Yeah. <laughs>
Ty, it was great getting to talk to you. Hope you have a great rest of your night. Thank you.